Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, my week in IndyCar series presented to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, Bell Racing Helmets, and since this is the Honda Indy Toronto Week, it is Christmas for our longtime partners, torontomotorsports.com. Going to come back to them in just one moment. So we have as our primary guest this week, young Colton Herta from Harding Steinbrenner Racing. Going to be going for his very first street course win this weekend. And I think looking at the really phenomenal rookie season he has put down so far, there's a very real possibility it could happen. And that, I think, is of the many things exciting about IndyCar this year. And in particular, it's rookies. The fact that it feels like Colton could be on pole and or could win almost everywhere that they go, thats it's been a while. It has been a good while since I can recall feeling that way about a rookie. Obviously, Robert Wickens last year brought that sensation. And just say that obviously Robert, while being brand new to everything in IndyCar at 28, 29 years old, definitely a young mid-career veteran albeit new to the circumstances colton being 19 freaking years old a rookie uh, in the same way but also definitely in age maturity experience etc so this is just it's been phenomenal to watch and then we close with michael duncalf who i've known for a good while canadian cat who believe i got to know him eight nine years ago when he was managing a driver with a uh, touring car team that i was affiliated with and known him for a little while good guy really good guy has big ambitions and love the fact that he's done everything you would hope to see happen for someone wanting to get to the top tier of the sport as initially as a driver as he mentioned trying to get his career going but by and large as a team owner has a Canadian Formula Ford 1600 effort that has been very successful, then branched that out into the road to Indy with a USF 2000 effort and now a very successful Indy Pro 2000 program, the series formerly known as Pro Mazda, under his exclusive Autosport banner. And so we have ourselves some Colton, relatively swift call there, and then also one with Michael afterwards, and then you will hear music fade out. Going to kick off here in just a moment with your Q&A. Been a pretty crazy, busy last eight, nine, ten days, however it is long it's been since my wife and I returned to the hospital. And since many of you have been so kind to send in ongoing well wishes and whatnot, uh, we'll just give you a quick update here. Then we'll get back to a topic that I kicked off with, that being Toronto Motorsports. And then we'll bounce back and do my Q&A, then get into our guests. Uh, so yeah, we're, boy, not too far away from being two weeks back into the hospital with my wife. Spent three weeks there from late May through early June. And fortunately, since last week's show and last week's update, the pain has come down to a tolerable level and has improved. Um, recording this intro has been a bit of a piecemeal episode this week with a variety of things recorded either early morning, late at night, or otherwise. But uh, it's about 7, 10 in the morning on Thursday, and I'm headed back to the hospital here shortly. Uh, so 
Shabrell's going to be going into her fourth consecutive day of radiation here this morning, and that has been helping a lot to try and kill and shrink the tumors, new tumors that have um, appeared in her back just honestly in the last month, which is very frightening, uh, talking about speed and the aggressiveness of having MRIs late May, early June, seeing what was there, attacking them, having surgery, freezing, killing, reconstructing, and then within the span of a month seeing that there's three new uh, small cancerous tumors, but uh, malignant nonetheless. So, yeah, uh, this this is something that you want to talk about grown like wildfire and not something that can be taken in, in, in any kind of baby steps or easy, hey, we're going to you know, just slow walk this a little bit, progressive. No, uh, we are having to truly, truly attack like hell because it is attacking uh, just in a voracious way. So, yeah, uh, going to have fun here. Going to have hopefully a little bit of levity and enjoyment with this week's episode. So I'm not going to get too deep into a lot of the other things going on here between uh, my wife and I and what we're having to fight. But uh, I'll tell you, if there has been a big revelation to come out of this experience uh, really dating back to September 1st when we first learned about her breast cancer, which is still something we're fighting. Uh, you expect all the the physical stuff, having to go through chemo and radiation and surgeries and just feeling bad, feeling a variety of things. Uh, the sleeplessness, the long hours, all that stuff, um, all, the, all those things I, I would say you kind of know that's on the docket. The mental side, that has been the, huh, yeah, I figured it was going to be tough, but like many things in life, until you're in the middle of it, you don't fully grasp how big that part happens to be. And so, ooh, yeah, um, <laughs> that is, that might be a bigger daily battle. And for me, yes, but that doesn't really matter, to be honest, for her in particular. Uh, it is, that's the thing that can kill you just as quickly. Uh, allowing yourself to fall into despair, depression, why me? Um, minute you start to lose hope when you've got something inside of you that's trying to kill you. Um, yeah, it's just amazing how, despite the... 10 different pills and 15 different injections being received every day uh, and radiation and this and that and chemotherapy, all the things that get put into one's body to try and fight this. It's just amazing to see how relentless the mental fight uh, has to be, must be in order to make all of the things that are being ingested, injected and otherwise to make those things actually have an effect. Uh, otherwise, once your spirit turns off, everything else is frankly a waste of time, and you're just counting time until you're done. So that's been the major revelation the second go-around. The first go-around uh, was tough, brutal for her, and honestly for me, obviously to a much lesser degree, but just 
none of this stuff is easy for anyone. And so, yeah, thinking that, boy, that was about as bad as it can be. It's been really interesting to accept the fact and digest the fact that no, 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 no. The first go round was actually, that was pretty darn easy by comparison. So just having a fight and, uh, yeah, the, the, the mental fortitude, it's a big area, big area of work taking place right now. So that's a little update here. Um, we are vigilant. We're going to keep fighting. Uh, my wife's, some of my wife's family's coming up this weekend to see her, which will be really good. Um, her brother, a Marine as well is going to come up. And so, yeah, that should be a lot of fun and hopefully change the pace a little bit. And so, yeah. And maybe you guys are tired of hearing me say thank you, but thank you. Thank you. And thank you again, doing this little podcast. It's been something that I look forward to because it is very much of a break in a routine that's 12 plus hours a day, pretty much all morning, all day into the evening, uh, being at the hospital 12 plus hours a day, just being there with her for her to be, you know, that support. So uh, this is actually a little bit of me time and it helps. And so knowing that I do have a podcast family a week in IndyCar family or week in sports cars or whatever little silly show I happen to poop out each week. It's just really nice to know that I have this, have this family, uh, extended family, and hopefully y'all don't mind me taking a little bit of time here to share what's going on in my world before we get to the primary reason for this little world, and that being the week in IndyCar. So let's get back to the thing I wanted to share a little bit with you on torontomotorsports.com. This is their Christmas. The Toronto Indy event is just what they look forward to more than anything. They're going to get a chance to show out this week, as they always do. If you're going to be at the event, please head to the main Expo Center. This is where the entire IndyCar series is paddocked. And inside the Expo Center is where they have their booth. It is filled with IndyCar memorabilia that if I were a wealthy person, I would be buying all of it and owning all of it and just monopolizing everything. I did get a chance to take a look at all the things that Derek Hoska has purchased, um, real, true, verified, honest memorabilia, race-used stuff from Greg Moore, Alex Zanardi, on and on, helmets and suits and visors, and just, it is staggering, the just the volume of, of memorabilia that he has gotten his hands on and is using as the centerpiece of their display uh, for sale, obviously, at Toronto this weekend. You can also purchase these items online at torontomotorsports.com. So as you guys know, I'm a memorabilia nut, and yeah, I want all of it. Um, Other cool thing, too, is as usual, they're doing some custom things. So there'll be some brand new T-shirts celebrating uh, some cat named... Hinch James Cliff, I believe. Hint, uh, anyways, some guy, uh, the rumor of some Canadian guy who competes in IndyCar who has a long-standing relationship with torontomotorsports.com. There's just going to be a lot of really cool stuff. Some Robin Miller t-shirts, hamburger and french fry, and blah, blah, blah. So if you're there, please stop by. And if nothing else, just say hello and greet the really kind folks at torontomotorsports.com who have been uh, just like y'all, truly family uh, just absolute family 
and they take great care of me. Um, just really excellent people. And uh, the reason they have become such an important part of my life uh, as friends, first and foremost, uh, but also as show partners, just their passion might sound trite or simple, but there are some, at least in our sport, who are business first, money first. Obviously, TorontoMotorsports.com is a business, just like what I do is a little business, but uh, it's all driven by passion first and foremost. It is not about the almighty dollar being the number one thing that they are chasing, and at least for me, I see it and feel it in everything that they do, which makes me really happy in having them as a show partner, and I would be silly to not extend the very same sentiment to the Justice Brothers uh, that have been family for a long time and have truly, <laughs> the company's name is family-based, about the Justice family and the Justice Brothers. Uh, this has been around forever, forever, and forever, and also Cooper Tires, too, with Chris Pantani, and he just runs the uh, the everything that Cooper Tires does. It's just pretty cool to have people who, yeah, there's business involved, but it it's never a thing. It's never felt. It's never seen. It's just good people and good friends, and we're trying to do, hopefully, things that you enjoy. So we throw in our, our awesome pals at Bell Racing Helmets as well, located in good old Speedway, Indiana. And you know, these are folks that I speak with on a regular basis. You guys may not know this. It doesn't really matter, but I don't mind sharing it. These are folks that I speak with all the time, if not in phone calls, by text, email, direct message, and <laughs> it's never anything about business. It's just, you know, true friends, true family-type people, and that's you know, a very heartening thing as well, knowing that you have really, really core, core relationships to rely upon here, especially in times of need. So if you get a chance, if you're in Toronto, stop by and say hi to our pals at torontomotorsports.com. And other than that, let's get going with your Q&A, followed by Colton Herta. And then we're going to close with Michael Duncalf, and then you'll hear some music start to fade out, and that will be the end of the show. And I'll look forward to speaking to you next week once we find out who is the winner of the Toronto IndyCar event. All right, so let's get rocking and rolling with your q a for me one that didn't come through a little bit of a surprise and just overstate the obvious here every week we ask for guests every week we ask for your questions for those guests that's the primary format that we have here you got questions about indycar as one of maybe four people on the planet who make a living and spend their lives every day Thinking about IndyCar, reporting about IndyCar, do not hesitate to send your questions about the series my way. And the one that I thought I was going to get was about Fernando Alonso and the, quote, report that he is splitting with McLaren. Interesting one there in that, I mean, you hear these things, you hear all kinds of stuff on a weekly basis. Not all those things that you hear end up going to print because sometimes you lack the multiple sources to confirm. I cannot speak to whether 
the original outlet that put that out had multiple sources. If they did, then I can't, again, I can't speak to the process behind all of that. Their reporting may end up being completely accurate uh, at the end of the year. Who knows? But at least for where we are at right now, having spoken with McLaren, they did lay out something that was pretty straightforward. It was Fernando is free to go and seek drives wherever he wants, just as he has been doing. So no change, meaning so you know how he hasn't been driving Formula One for us, but he has been continuing with Toyota and has ended up winning a world championship yet again, Le Mans again, that same kind of scenario. If this is something he wants to go do with whomever, doors open for him to do that. But we still have a business relationship with him as a brand ambassador, and we may indeed do more racing things together in the future. But in terms of cutting bait, he's a free agent or he's on his way out the door. That is completely inaccurate. And again, I can't speak for what might happen at the end of the year when his contract is up, provided it is up at the end of the year. I don't know those details, but I can tell you that the McLaren team was taken aback by that report and in the communications I had with them, nothing about it came across to me as saving face as, Oh, damage control. What kind of BS can we put out to mask something that's been uncovered that we don't want told didn't get that sense at all. And can say that one representative from McLaren in particular who I have had many 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 deep off the record conversations with facts that are without question again just trying to share a little bit here Um, speaking with someone on background about this someone who has shared or and or confirmed many things that I have known that didn't necessarily go to print the moment that I heard them because needed to button up a few other things, but someone who's been a very strong ally in separating truth from non-truth definitely said, no, there is nothing here. There is nothing that is broken down. If Fernando ends up choosing to leave at the end of this contract, it's his choice as for anything breaking down now or us falling apart. That is absolutely not the case. So who knows what that means uh, if we're talking IndyCar specifically and not trying to sound flippant, but if Fernando wants to go drive a touring car in some series in the world, cool, go do it, go do your thing, awesome. At least for the things that I think interests us the most, that being trying to complete the Triple Crown, competing at the Indy 500, aware of McLaren doing just as they did last year and really talking through some pretty serious possibilities within the IndyCar paddock of becoming a part of things in a greater role come 2020. Um, With that, possibly independent of that, be very interesting to see where Fernando's interests fall. And... We know that he wants to come back to Indy and to do the Indy 500 properly. I would say it would be very unlikely from the rumors that I have heard and a little bit of intel that I have that 
if McLaren were to do this again, that it would be done in a identical independent fashion. I'd be very surprised if we learn a McLaren's coming back to Indy next year. It's going to be them doing it on their own again. That would shock me or they're not only going to do the 500, but they're going to do a full season, partial season, something. I am fairly confident that there is going to be a McLaren dash or slash at a team name after that, if they decide to go forward. So watch the space, stay tuned, whether this involves Fernando Alonso or not, I can't say, I don't honestly know. I do think that, if Fernando were to decide to try and do the 500 separate independently of McLaren or otherwise, I do think there'd be some pretty interested teams to see if he might be part of their program to do the 500. So McLaren's obviously been the main opener of doors and main facilitator when it comes to Alonzo at the 500. Definitely think that, you know, you can throw around pretty much any name and that team would be very keen on having him just based on what we saw in 2017. Uh, Obviously we didn't get to see a lot in 2019, but I think one way or the other with McLaren or independent of McLaren, I think Fernando is not going to have too hard of a time getting back into a quality seat. All right, let's jump to the questions you sent in for me. And we are going to kick off with Jim Johnstone, who says, I had a random thought pop in my head. Are engine oils controlled by the engine manufacturers? Are the teams free to use what they want? If they are free, are teams with oil company sponsors like Lucas, Pennzoil, Total, etc., using those brands? Or are there super high-tech racing oils that they would be using while advertising for the oil companies in a very generic way jim we do have a little bit of a i don't want to say situation here but we do have something where the engine manufacturers are extremely particular of what is put inside of their engines and there's not a lot that goes on when it comes to the maintenance of the engines that does not involve someone from honda performance development or ilmore engineering standing right there and watching it um, if not doing it themselves Uh, so every time an engine is fired up at the track in the garage uh, at a shop etc there is a representative plugging in making all of that possible they're looking at all the parameters and when the motor is warm and oil levels are checked etc that is something that is done with oversight As for truth in advertising, there have been some great rules over the years saying, hey, if you're advertising that you have Brand X oil uh, on the car, then you got to have Brand X oil in the car. A lot of this time, a lot of those times involved eras where the teams own the engines or, or had direct control over them. Would say that to all that I know, both manufacturers have complete say over what goes in in terms of oil uh, what creates spark what cools uh, this is not something 
to my knowledge, that is left up to the teams to put in whatever it is that they want based on a sponsor. So could we have a situation where manufacturers test the products and bless or not bless them? Or we do have the old dynamic of, hey, pour out the stuff that's in those bottles and fill it up with the thing that uh, we are told that we must run. So when we are, when you see me holding the bottle and pouring it in uh, to the oil reservoir, it sure looks like brand X, but it is indeed the thing that the manufacturer dictates. I, I think we might be circulating in general areas right there. Uh, Jim, let's go to our pal, Jerry Siddeth, who says, Marshall, the IMS museum has had some really impressive exhibits over the last few years. Penske, Foyt, the Unser's and now Mario Andretti. If you could pick an exhibit for the IMS Museum, what would it be? Oh, boy, that's a great one, Jerry. Really a great one. A couple things come to mind. I'd love to look at the failures, right? That, to me, would be a wonderful exhibit. And if they've already had it and done it, then I apologize. I'm late to the party. I'd love to see the high-ambition cars that failed, those who failed to qualify uh, concepts that just did not pan out. And it could be not only cars, but other technologies. I think of 1994 in the Beast, the Ilmore 209 cubic inch monster pushrod V8 engine and how that dominated. Well, um, there was also at that time Michael Greenfield, who was a promising open wheeler who came into IndyCar and did a little bit of stuff on a very limited budget. They built their, oh, they, they actually built a green field engine, which is the same 209 cubic inch thing. And it didn't really do anything, but it's stuff like that where I don't know. It might be my particular angle and slant on things. And, and I th- think many of you listening might know not only is technology and engineering and all that stuff, that's, you know, a big part of me and my background. And I try and do a lot of that in my professional stuff these days and what I write or whatever else. But I come from an era where ideas were pretty much always waiting for just someone to say, yeah, great, go do it. There was a green light to just about any and everything compared to, oh, got to run to the rule book there's probably something saying we can't lots of red lights so my mindset from my earliest days in the sport decades ago involves just a mental green light hey can we build this can we bend that can we what is it that we can do that's going to come up with making a better faster car and i love jerry many of the exhibits that we've seen they've just been beautiful But a big part of me says, you know, maybe the thing we need to celebrate more, and it's funny that, yes, failures actually can be a really great way of doing it. We've seen the turbines. We've seen the yellow submarine and its ground effects. We've seen, again, the beast. We've seen many of these high examples of great ideas that were successful at Indy. I think the failures the variety, the sidecar, for example, uh, Smoky Unix sidecar, which has been on display there. Um, didn't work. Crazy idea. But more of that, where you just see the, the links of human ingenuity or curiosity, maybe more than anything, the green light for 
human curiosity in oval open wheel form expressed and seeing how some of these radical ideas that were you go what come on man that was never gonna work but looking at the things trying to deconstruct huh all right why did you place that here (laughs) uh hey joe huffaker you built a twin engine flat porsche indycar what (laughs) why'd you do that well again i know the story i've interviewed him about it but being able to have that car there or if not the car something drawings of it blueprints something where you can understand you go huh so what is it that you were trying to do what did you think that was going to work and just trying to understand really have these things laid out where you go all right you know we're trying to get to the moon yeah we didn't even get out of orbit but that's an interesting design uh let's understand where you went what you were trying to achieve maybe more than anything where you thought the advantage was going to be revealed i think that jerry possibly in a the the cars that didn't make the show and or the cars that struggled and ultimately failed i think that'd just be a fantastic thing to do uh heck i'd love to help organize it because these oddities uh, these little technical curiosities you go yep i love them they're brilliant uh let's get ken hamilton's uh eagle chassis possibly the weirdest indy car ever built let's get that thing uh it provided it still exists i believe it does i think it's in a museum somewhere and if not uh <laughs> it looks like something a couple of you me and a couple of you on a weekend with a lot of hard alcohol could probably come close to almost exactly replicating in a garage with some plywood and hammers so yeah just the what happened um what happened that would be the name with about five question marks after it that would be the name of the exhibit cherry let's go to doug holtzman he says hi mp this is more of a public service announcement tying into a question on last week's weekend indycar podcast he says for those who care to see pato award racing in the japanese super formula series it can be found on the let's go racing youtube channel which is formerly the nismo channel so good note i know that somebody else mentioned on the good old tweeters that you can pay motorsport.com slash motorsport tv money uh to watch it but um yeah let's not do that let's not give them money for something that you can watch for free on youtube and i am aware of the let's go racing channel and the fact that they have been live streaming the super formula series for a good long while now so yeah youtube let's go racing and let's watch our man pato award who was last week's guest on his debut let's go to nick opop from down under he says hey marshall i'm a diehard aussie fan I miss having you guys, IndyCar and Cart in my backyard. What are the benefits, if any, to racing in Australia? It says, would dearly love to have the circus back. The two obvious things that stand out, Nick, and might not be the most original answer, but they're just the, the hardcore reasons. One is money. <laughs> IndyCar does not tend to go anywhere unless money is involved. So if the local Queensland government is able to raise the money, uh, through tourism funds to have IndyCar come, 
turn this into a major event as it once was to hopefully get more folks to travel and come see and spend money in the local economy. That's obviously the the trade-off that is hoped for. IndyCar receives money to go. IndyCar says they take money like that and with the intent of enriching the leader circle contracts paid out to each full-time team. And then hopefully the local government does see a spike in tourism and whatnot. Looking at some of the things I've read over the past week or so, at least coming out of the Australian supercar series, which is hoping to uh, work with IndyCar to have them back. The supercars took over the event after IndyCar left and continue to race there. Um, Sounds like there might not be a lot in a positive direction happening, unfortunately. Would say the other obvious value is with Mr. Five-Time Scott Dixon, with Mr. One-Time Awesome Will Power, and the potential for some other down-under talent to possibly participate in the event. You know, it's pretty cool. It'd be one thing if we were going to Belgium. You know, I'd love to see IndyCar race at Spa. Who wouldn't? It'd be amazing. We don't have any Belgian drivers. There's no link. Here, (laughs) we have two of the absolute best. Also, two of the not only true veterans of the series, but if we're honest, I don't know how many more years Scott Dixon will be competing full-time in IndyCar. Same with Will Power. They're both, I believe, 38-ish, 39. So just saying, Nick, that I'm hoping IndyCar and the uh, QR government can come up with uh, come up with something and make it happen before the two leading lights from down under might be looking to step away uh, from doing this as their full-time job. Go to Bob Fay. Uh, says, hey, thanks for answering my question last week. Of course, that's what, what we're here to do, Bob. Says, uh, I played you saying my name to anyone who would listen. Well, all right, that's weird, but hey, play away, Bob. Says, so this isn't a question, just a heads up to the quality of race car drivers being cultivated up here in Connecticut. Says, we currently have Indy 500 Rookie of the Year, Santino Ferrucci, NASCAR Cup Champion Joey Logano, and promising and upcoming NASCAR Modified Driver, now Rookie in Cup, Ryan Priest. Just so everyone knows out there, we definitely know how to drive here up north. Well, it's never a real question, but we do appreciate the reminder, Bob. Let's go to Brett Ross. This is MP. Any good pranks that you were a part of or happened to you during your IndyCar days? That's a good one. Brett, I got to apologize here, though. My memory's slipping a little bit. I'll, I can just share in general. The best times, the most fun times that I had was coming into IndyCar with the Thomas Nat Motorsports Genoa Racing Outfit. I'd been a part of the Genoa family since about 93. We came into the Indy Racing League in 97. So prior to that, we were in uh, the Form Atlantic Series in Indy Lights. And so while we were not in IndyCar... We were in <laughs> in IndyCar in terms of the support races for years and years and years. And so being on that trail with the Genoa team based here in Northern California about, I mean, heck, if you've ever been to Sonoma Raceway driving north uh, from San Francisco or similar, 
you drive up to a little town named Novato, and you make a right to go across the top of the bay and get to the track. So um, the team based in Novato, just it was pretty much nonstop. I don't not necessarily pranks all the time, but just good natured fun and a real true spirited effort to have a proper work life balance. And so some of us, I was not married, but some of us were married and or had girlfriends. Some didn't. There's, you know, bachelors and otherwise. Um, we had a lot of fun, Brett. We had a lot of fun. Uh, this, let's see, I think it would have been the, would have been 96 or so. Uh, we would spend the summer in Lansing, Michigan, East Lansing, Michigan, at a shop there just because so much of the, the summer travel was based in or around the Midwest. And I remember, again, I believe it was 96, uh, myself, Michael Cannon, uh, John Ennick, Ennick um, Troy Stevens, uh, Ed Nelson, a few others. We would just, yeah, <laughs> we enjoyed ourselves a lot. Um, there's some definite editing going on here. Um, we just do a lot of other things too, which, Again, not necessarily on the prank level, but when I think of pranks, I think of fun, like good natured fun and woohoo and those, but being little spikes, like little short things that happened. And then you go back to your regularly scheduled life. The reason this stuff is coming to mind is it was that same just level of fun, but it was really constant. So things like everyone buying old bikes. Uh, I found an old John Deere bicycle. Uh, I know Enik found the John Deere bicycle and I stole it from him. Kind of hard to steal it from someone you're, you're sharing a, an apartment with, but we would ride down to just downtown East Lansing, little college town and go to uh, record stores after work or on the weekend. You know, if we had a weekend off uh, would go to, you know, I think we found an arcade, which was a blast and you know bars and all that other stuff that's kind of the the expected stuff but just touring around rolling around rocking out having fun listening to the beastie boys or whatever else on our bikes and very much i will say i mean michael obviously being from canada but the rest of us all being uh bay area guys it was just very much a case of bringing this kind of Go have fun, see the world, roll around, go have some good food, listen to great music, play, you know, just bring life and bring fun and bring style, whatever it is, to what you do. Because when you're working in racing, for anyone who does work in racing, you know that it can be such a grind that if all you're doing at the end of the day is going and grabbing a six pack and cutting on the TV and watching something or sitting out on the back porch. Uh, not that those things are bad, but if that's the only thing you have, it's probably not going to sustain you for very long. So the fact that everybody had the mindset of get your work done, then we're going to go jump on our bikes, ride around and just have fun. A little bit of mayhem, a little bit of mischief, go to um, thrift stores, secondhand stores and buy 
you know, that's where I found my 118th scale A-team van uh, in East Lansing in 96 that I still have and used to bring with me to IndyCar races. Um, go and buy a stupid hat or shirt or whatever. Just that spirit of exploring and having fun. And so I'd say that, Brett, bringing that, you know, honestly, it's, I think for many people here in the Bay Area, that's kind of core to what you do. Just being being able to bring that with us on the road and have that as something that transported well with us, it's just awesome. That's why I look back on those times with so much love and reverie because the racing was great. We had success. We won races, all that kind of good stuff in Atlantic, in Indy Lights. Did well in the good old Indy Racing League. But really, the the times away from the track and or just the spirit that we brought with us throughout, yeah, that was uh, that was pretty darn awesome. Let's go to Jordan Darwin who says, MP, you've mentioned that you collect racing stickers. What is in your collection, and do you have any cool ways of displaying them? Well, Jordan, that's a great question. I've been meaning to put this out for probably a year, maybe a a little bit under a year um have not had the amount of free time that i'd hoped to do that but last year before the start of the 2018 season i took the time to grab all the racing stickers that i own and photograph them and all with the intent of starting a new if not weekly once maybe twice a month short video series called Marshall Pruitt loves racing stickers because that's the only way I could think of to actually do exactly what you mentioned of sharing this silly collection and presenting it. So it's still a goal. It's still something I plan on doing. Just need to find some time. And so uh, the collection, which is probably, I don't know, 150 to 200 of them. And I mean, I have a lot more than that. I guess by numbers I have more, but in terms of, ones that are what I consider fun, unique, interesting things that would be considered a collection, uh, not just, hey, I grabbed it and it was free, but things that I actually would want to have and keep, probably 150 or 200 or so. And yeah, so the thought, once I can, is to put out one of these, maybe two of these per month, I don't know, three to five minutes long on my little YouTube page that I always forget I have and make no effort i guess to tell people exists which is dumb of me um and then just do a little voiceover of saying hey here's this here's this weird or fun or amazing richard petty 1973 stp nascar sticker or here's this one from Le Mans, which uh, is amazing for some reason or here's this thing here that i just love because it's pretty and nothing else so just something along those lines of sharing sharing what the collection happens to be, but also just sharing the reason why I happen to love them and have kept them. So that's the goal, Jordan. And we'll see, hopefully, maybe as I get into the off season here, and if things slow down on the home front, I'll be able to indeed start to knock out some of those episodes. Mike Stoops says, I was going to write a longer question, but realized it came down to this. Independent damper development. Worth it or not to the sport? 
try to be pretty consistent on this answer, Mike, and it is really the version of whack-a-mole. If IndyCar were to say, we are going to spec dampers, and I keep hearing that there's some possibility of that with the next generation car. We keep hearing that dampers cost, a set of dampers can cost $100,000, maybe even more, and that's too much, and it's crazy. Some team owners absolutely bring this up as one of the biggest failings of IndyCar. How could this be possible? This is ridiculous, so on and so forth. The the whack-a-mole game that I referenced, Mike, comes to if it's not dampers and the entire car is not locked down 100%, can't touch it, you can bolt it together, you can twist the little wing adjusters if you want and you can play with ride height and up and down but essentially you cannot touch this car at all unless we have that then there's always going to be an equivalent of independent damper development in terms of costs so yeah i think there's it's a bad reputation that dampers have received i do get some of the arguments all right so we're spending a crazy amount of money for the the biggest area that is left open for us to develop independently which shapes the handling of these cars which makes a team penske and andretti autosport the two i would say that have stood out in terms of damper development more than any others what makes their cars better than the majority of everyone else's but who cares the, the fan in the stands can't see them. Uh, Honda's not selling an additional Civic or whatever else because the Andretti Autosport cars are winning and have great dampers on them. Uh, there are no additional Chevy Cruises or whatever moving off the showroom floor because Team Penske's super expensive, super exclusive dampers are, are doing something that, you know, pick another team. Ed Carpenter Racing's uh, don't happen to be doing. I get that. Just from a practical standpoint, is there anything we can think of from a practical standpoint that would be opened up where that might fit that criteria? Chevy is not going to let Ricardo Junco's uh, throw in a different set of pistons into his motor because he believes it's going to either change the compression ratio or something improved is going to happen in terms of spark ignition explosion etc i mean that's not going to happen we could potentially allow teams to start getting into transmissions um, knowing that these are spec transmissions provided by x-track there are you know you can obviously make some choices of what you do internally but is that something where we believe all right we're going to lock down dampers but we're going to let teams play a little bit with transmissions knowing that we have a single vendor and X-Track is not supplying the automotive industry. Again, it's kind of the whack-a-mole thing where you go, okay, you have one of two ways to go. Well, I guess technically you got three because we're in that third way. You can lock everything down, say, nope, all spec off the shelf, period. You have it's wide open, do your thing, or you have where we are at now, which is it's, 
by and large spec, but we're going to allow you to do more things to open things up, allow you to make this piece, manufacture that part, something where it's not a hundred percent having to call Delara to order things out of the, uh, out of the good old sales and service book. But in terms of performance, Mike, the one area that makes sense to me to open up for teams to play with, since it is such a massive differentiator in vehicle performance is damping. And so if it's not damping, if you want to lock that down and say, okay, but teams can now do aero development, you are going to hear folks who are currently complaining about the costs of damper development, screaming bloody murder to go back to dampers and to lock down arrow to being totally spec because the minute that door gets opened <laughs> the money being invested in arrow development is just it's going to be off the charts so coming from the mindset of we want to let you have some individuality and let you do some things that help influence performance but not let you go completely mental i know these little dampers sound like boy for the size and what they are versus the cost it's totally ridiculous just saying this is some very serious lesser of evils and given other areas to explore for performance if those things were to be opened up yeah folks would be running back to indycar saying please please let's just just go back to damper development that was good Let's go to Scott Wharton. He says, Marshall, with Mid-Ohio fast approaching, there is something that I've always wondered about the track when IndyCar visits every summer. He says, why is the start line and the finish line on different sides of the track? This isn't a complaint, just a curiosity. As I understand it, Scott, it has been a case of wanting to allow all of the cars to pack up and start effectively in as straight of a line as they can. I believe there might be a little bit of a legacy item here from when the grids were bigger and we had more rows where getting the entire field packed up coming out of the final corner and in a straight line and then throwing the green flag on the front straight right in front of the pits. I believe that was honestly just one of the main issues, not being able to get everybody in as equal a position as possible because if you're obviously rounding a corner at slow speed compared to ready to accelerate hard in a straight line it's going to create some inequities there as i forgot to turn the ringer off on my phone but hey it's a text from our pal benito santos um would also say that you know there there might be a little bit of of might be worth reconsidering this a little bit I also know that with turn one being turn one being very fast and turn one being a place that in theory you could have a few too many people trying to pack down the inside and create mayhem. We see that happen a little bit on the back straight when we start the race there hasn't been a huge, huge issue though, because I think we have a fairly, long and well-defined braking zone for folks to try and slow themselves turn one however starting uh on the front straight not a lot of braking there it's just a lot of blasting into it at high speed you know a little lift of course etc but um on the start 
I just think that the way the layout of the track is, especially with the anticipated length of the number of rows, uh, I think that the separation there, Scott, is the main reason. But who knows? Uh, Depending on car count, that might not always be an absolute necessity. Go to Stephen Straub. Thanks, Steve, by the way, for always sending in some fun stuff each week. He says, do you think changing the engine specs from the proposed 2.4 liter V6 to something more relevant for performance passenger cars, such as three and a half, maybe 3.6 liters for a V6, would help to entice a third manufacturer to join the series? He says, hybrids seems like it won't happen anytime soon. This is one that I I love this question, Steve, and it's for the very specific reason of relevance. So what we have in this 2.2 liter formula that's going on right now is one that has been chosen by the manufacturers. So Honda and Chevy, and I realize that Lotus slash Judd was a part of this uh, makeup back in the day. But you did have a case where the manufacturers effectively chose the size of the engine that we have been using now for a very long time. And it's because they felt that was a relevant size. So if we're talking passenger V6 displacement, as you're mentioning here, for sure. Something in the high two liters to three, three and a half. Uh, I mean, heck, we're talking flat sixes up to four liter and whatnot with porsche but yeah they tend to definitely be bigger than the 2.2 we have now or the 2.4 that's coming a couple of years from now i do think that the era steve of consumers really looking at capacity (laughs) and saying oh that's a three point three well hmm no that that doesn't make sense i want something bigger or smaller not saying that the uh, car nuts that that folks who really know what they're talking about and looking at and understanding the difference like many of you not saying that this applies to us but i think the average human being that goes to a dealership to buy a vehicle today is so radically different than the one that used to exist who would have truly wanted to know the difference between this 2.8 liter V6 in one model line and say the 3.7 liter in a different one. I just don't know if the average person cares or even knows the difference anymore. And I do believe that's a vast change from the past. Not that everybody walking into a dealership Uh, 10 years ago or 20 years ago knew all of these nuances understood why one displacement might have a benefit over another in the particular application wherever they lived for the thing they wanted to do but just general automotive knowledge at least in my lifetime certainly feels like it is the lowest it's ever been does it get good gas mileage does it not knock birds out of the sky because it's polluting so heavily is it reliable? I think that's kind of the basics that maybe too many folks uh, only know about when considering a car outside of does it look good. So I think just in this very specific case, Steve, of IndyCar, 
and the displacement chosen for 2021 being 2.4 liters. I think if Honda and Chevy are saying, hey, we, we like this, we're the ones currently invested in the series, and we see value in this and believe that the fact that it is a smaller V6 than anything we sell, and we can promote the fact that we have this very tiny compact thing that is making big power and therefore the efficiency and capabilities are off the charts from an engineering standpoint, at least that is a promotional win. Look at the big things we can do with something small and not just big and nasty and burping all kinds of uh, disgusting things into the universe. And I realize, of course, that's the lie we don't share uh, with folks that actually, you know, spending time on weekends going motor racing and burning uh, burning all kinds of things and pumping these things in the atmosphere. It's, you know, no one would say that that is helping the environment, but regardless, we don't share that with the world. Um, I just don't think, Steve, we're in a time where it matters. And I don't know if it's ever going to matter again. So do I think more manufacturers would get involved if they increased the displacement? I honestly don't. That is also coming from a point of, if we think about the construction of an Indy car, with it being 100% custom, there's nothing production-based about it. There's nothing that comes from a uh, production line that gets bolted on or gets used. Knowing that an IndyCar is small and low and narrow and light, and it's all about stiffness and lack of weight and the performance that comes from it, a larger three and a half plus size V6, a liter V6, is just going to be a larger thing. That is indeed more of what I would expect to find in sports cars, in IMSA, in a GT class, or in one of the bigger prototypes, LMP. Two, uh, the DPI-based LMP2s and IMSA and such. For what we need in IndyCar, it needs to be small, needs to be light, needs to be narrow, needs to be compact front to back. Uh, all of these things to fit inside the chassis to then perform. And I realize that you know, for those who know their engines, uh, internal capacity and increase in cubic inches doesn't necessarily mean the engine itself gets bigger, but there are some practical limitations that if you want to bump it up to say three and a half liters from 2.2 or 2.4, there is going to be some physical growth of the overall motor to accommodate that bigger internal capacity. So I just think time has passed Steve on this really being a hook for people who care. Therefore having the manufacturers engaged in IndyCar say, Hey, this size works for us. I think that's fine. It would have really stood out as weird years ago, but I think it's fine. And also, I don't think the capacity choice is something that would ward off other manufacturers from wanting to get in, knowing that really there's nothing on the production side that could carry over uh, that might actually apply. So I'm good with it. Um, uh, yeah, I just sure wish we were in a time where people cared and knew why going from 2.2 liters to 2.4 uh, was a good thing and the reasons to do that and the benefits that came from it. Also, on your mention here of hybrid seems like it won't happen anytime soon. I believe, as I mentioned last week and I've mentioned a few times recently, wash the space. 
Um, I'm still, I'm not in total agreement here. Uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, I think we might, I think there's a stronger likelihood of it actually happening than not. So, um, more on that in the future. Uh, let's see. You're going to go to Keith Lee as we start to ramp down here and get closer to our man, Colton Herta coming in. He says, you've mentioned the messy divorce between team Penske and Alexander Rossi's Andretti Autosport engineer, Jeremy Millis. Can you provide some of the details uh, to the uninitiated? Um, I'm going to take a little bit of a pass on this, Keith, just because Jeremy, who I've known for 19 years now, 20 years, I've never heard him discuss this publicly. And since some of what I know is more on the friend definitely on the friend side, not on the professional side, it would be incorrect. Uh, I can, I'll just share this, which isn't, you know, this isn't revealing anything um, sensitive or in depth. Indy, I think shortly after the GP. So just a couple, maybe a, a couple days into practice this year. And I don't remember exactly where I was in, in gasoline alley, but, uh, was, must've been on the, the row where the Penske cars were located. And I think new garden walked or came around the corner was coming in, uh, this in the morning to walk over to his garage. And so, um, he stopped and we were just BSing about whatever and yucking it up a little bit, um, nonsense in general. And then Jeremy came walking by. So Jeremy stopped by and obviously Jeremy was, joseph's race engineer at uh sarah fisher hartman racing slash um i guess the variety of names that it was but so those two obviously great relationship won some great races etc and so he stepped in and just between us we were talking about um jeremy's new driver alexander rossi and hey boy you know you might have a new teammate next year, new garden could be fun. What do you think? And so again, I mean, these are the kinds of things that we talk about myself, Robin Miller, David Mousher, whatever. These are the things that we're just talking about BSing with, you know, friends in the paddock, drivers, team owners, whatever. When you see us just BSing, these are the kinds of things that we're usually talking about. Hey, what do you think, man? You, uh, you're going to have to give up a little bit of locker space you know, in the, uh, in the transporter for uh, Rossi when he gets here next year and just prod him a little bit and see how he responds. And, uh, so Joseph was, you know, like, Oh man, you know, I have no idea, you know, what, if that's what happens, awesome. I'll welcome. It. It'll be great. You know, we'll go at it like cats and dogs and, you know, it'll, it'll be good for everybody. But, um, you know, I, I don't know, man, I'm not giving up any locker space though. Dang it. I've earned it. So I had a little bit of a laugh, whatever. And, uh, so obviously knowing that Jeremy worked for Penske and that did not end very positively and knowing that obviously he's engineering Rossi right now. And, uh, you know, boy, it would be, uh, sure, sure. be fun. I guess. Does that mean you're tied to this Millis, right? You know, in, in whatever contract Rossi comes up with, you're an automatic, uh, entry there at Penske. He's like, nah, man, <laughs> I can't tell you anything about whatever alex is doing next year i can just tell you one thing if he's driving for penske it sure as hell is not going to have me engineering the thing because they're not going to let me anywhere near the place again so 
anyways, um, not sharing anything new here, Keith, but just, you know, uh, Jeremy, who's one of the, the funnier, more engaging people you'll meet in the paddock, you know, he, he's well aware that unless some sort of really strange, unless the, the upside down appears in IndyCar, we have a Stranger Things moment. Um, there's pretty much no scenario we can think of where he would be returning there. And yeah, I'll just throw this in too. Probably like myself, like a, a Michael Cannon who I referenced earlier, very distinct personalities, you know, very much our own men, uh, unapologetic about who we are, whatever we are, we're just who we are. And that's maybe compared to a lot of folks who just try and blend in, try not to really, you know, be recognized too much. Jeremy is a thousand percent his own man. He has just as many quirks and odd traits as I do or Cannon or whomever else. Miller, good Lord, Here's, he's our leader in that regard. Jeremy is just 100% Jeremy. The thought of him kind of blending in, being just, you know, a face in the crowd, one of the, the nameless, faceless types on a team, any team, he is not that guy. Never has been. Never will be when he and I worked together in 2000 in the IRL. I mean, he, you talk about a bump on a log, this guy just in a team with many old veterans, John King and this guy and that guy, just some old crusty bastards. He was just this alien from outer space. And it was so funny just watching these old school veterans and just not even knowing how to handle this guy whose brain is just going a million miles an hour, brilliant as can be, hilarious, cracking fun on, just making fun of everybody. Big guy, too, so you can't really mess with them. He was just, again, it was hilarious to watch because they didn't know what to do. Normally, it'd be, shut up, kid. God damn it. You know, some sort of constant reprimand of fall in line, know your place, shut up and listen. One of these days, you'll earn the right to speak. And you go, no, that's not how he's going to do it. He's just going to be himself. Everyone around is going to have to adapt to who he is. And I would say you'd probably probably be better for it. Um, just take that, Keith. Insert that into Team Penske. <laughs> and realize... He's never going to be anything other than himself. Team Penske being a, an old and well-defined institution, probably not the group that's going to then change and adapt to Jeremy. Um, yeah, you might have some of the primary reasons of why things did not exactly go to plan. So there's that. Ryan Terpstra, hey, Ryan, says for MP question on your favorite topic led panels he says they worked on most cars for the knee 500 but a handful had issues here's my question why not run the quote imperfect panels and get what you can out of them and i'm guessing here ryan you're referring to the maybe the original ones that seemed to work just fine didn't do anything other than just show position number i believe but uh, why not run those i don't know i don't honestly know there's there's something whether it's 
a continuing harmonics issue, whether it's a software issue. I don't know what it is that keeps making problems with the new, new, new panels here that have been provided. Um, It's a bizarre thing just in the fact that it seems that for those who like the panels, they really like the panels. And it's not just the fact that they show up a shiny number on them, but the fact that they can do some diverse things. Flash when pushed to pass is active. Do a standing timing count on duration of a pit stop. And again, variety of functions and options. For those who really like them, this is a topic of constant frustration. I haven't checked in with IndyCar on this lately. Uh, I don't know if I've had the heart to because it just seems like Yet another call from Pruitt saying, guys, uh, our, our listeners yet again are asking, why can't you figure this thing out? Um, I don't know what the answer is, Ryan. I have to believe that they can work. I realize that the size and weight, and there are many differences between an IndyCar and, say, the, the variety of classes in IMSA's WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. These are the same panels. These are the same exact things. And looking at a... GT car that weighs almost a thousand pounds more and is getting just battered and abused at Sebring over bumps that the Indy cars never see because they only use the short track. But some of the just watching how hard prototypes and GT cars are just smashed to death at Sebring and the panels function and the panels work. The panels don't blink. Panels don't screw up. Um, that I clearly am not understanding what it is about being unable to solve this. So as I get some time, or I have the maybe the fortitude, the mental fortitude, I will reach out and see if uh, the the kind kind man at IndyCar who looks after them can give us some insights. All right, we are down to our last two questions. The penultimate question comes in from our man, Kevin Perez Frederico. He says, MP, wouldn't it be wise of IndyCar to look into having a technical rules alliance with the Japanese Super Formula organization? Mark Miles wants more overseas events, add another engine partner, more teams and drivers, and cut down on costs. He says, Delar already supplies both series, thus making a single chassis for both, uh, allow them to double the inventory and cut down on overall costs we gain another manufacturer with Toyota and with NTT being our primary sponsor uh, and them being Japanese based. I can see them covering an event in Japan says while Honda and Toyota uh, will have their own racetrack to stage events. um, He would like to open the tire war again. If we are going to continue to keep a single chassis. Uh, No, this has been mentioned before. I think you've sent this in once or twice before Kevin, I might've answered it before. I don't recall it's an interesting concept. I, I don't think that there are negatives to it. Maybe I would position this in the opposite direction, though, and this might just be my nationality uh, on display, but I can't think of any reason why IndyCar, which has been around for more than 100 years, would align its rules with a very, by comparison, small and regional open-wheel series like Super Formula. Um, I'd say if anything, I'd 
present this in the opposite direction. Wouldn't it be wise of Super Formula to reach out to IndyCar and ask to align their rules or their at least their chassis with what IndyCar is doing? Uh, I just can't picture any thing that would have IndyCar basing its next rule package on a Japanese open wheel series. Um, that's just insane to me. And I think just history and precedence here, you know, if you have one thing that's very big and old and established and you have another thing that is smaller and less established, um, it's usually a case of the smaller thing being aspirational, trying to go up, not the other way around. So that's why this doesn't make sense to me from IndyCar trying to make itself into North American super formula. Um, I mean, there's, you know, then there's some other maybe more direct things here. Toyota has had an opportunity to return to IndyCar for a long time. They have chosen not to. Um, with what we're referencing here on the super formula front, we would be talking Toyota Japan, obviously, uh, Toyota racing development TRD here in the U S have obviously played in both the, uh, the cart IndyCar series and the Indy racing league. Um, they aren't now and have not been NASCAR has been their primary thing, uh, through their Lexus brand, they have gotten into IMSA, which is great. Um, but I can't picture a scenario where an alignment in chassis between IndyCar and Super Formula would be the gateway for Toyota Japan to then compete in North America. Uh, if it's going to happen, it would be the U.S branch of toyota for sure so you know do i think there could be something interesting you know could indycar could delara could super formula could all three parties talk and say all right do we want to come up with something common and if a super formula team wanted to come and compete at indy or do an entire season whatever it is could that be the thing possibly um I mean, here's the other thing too, and I'm not trying to just poop all over the idea. I mean, I wish I'd have nothing against this happening, Kevin. I would just say buying a rolling IndyCar chassis. Granted, I don't know what the 2022 price is going to be, but you know, you're going to spend a couple hundred grand for sure. But this is this is not the thing that is, in theory, going to make a Super Formula team compete or not compete in IndyCar. So knowing that the team would be, we would expect, based in Japan, coming to play an IndyCar is going to be an expensive thing, no matter what. Uh, Setting up a shop, uh, staffing it, whether it's hiring local or bringing folks over, putting them up, paying them, etc. If the thing that stops a team from doing that is having to buy a bespoke IndyCar chassis, I would say that it it was never going to happen in the first place because the overall amount of money needed to do this would be enough to where that would be a very small number to consider. Cost savings obviously are a good thing, but uh, the fact that a team would have a common chassis and would save a couple hundred grand, that being that couple hundred grand being the difference, I'd say 
that's not a realistic scenario to make going through this entire situation. Um, that's not, that would not be the driver. That would not be the main thing to make happen. But again, I would love, heck, I'd love, love to see this happen in some way. Just not sure if a, an alignment in chassis is going to be the thing that makes that possible. I do think just independently, Kevin, it'd be really smart for Mark Miles and Jay Fry to establish if they don't already have them, but to build some sort of bridge with the super formula paddock and organization. I think that would be a really smart thing. Um, Let's throw out a wacky idea, knowing that in terms of proximity, Japan is closer to California than any of the other events on the calendar. What about some form of guest appearance, guest race of getting the Super Formula Series over for Monterey season finale? Obviously not this year, but maybe next year. Uh, streets of Long Beach, who knows? Something where you know the sending cars over to the closest coast that we have to offer. Maybe that could be a thing. Maybe that could be a bridge to build. Love to see that. I think that would be pretty cool. All right, we're going to close with Windy Car, a great name from Twitter. It says, hey, Marshall, I feel like both Robin and yourself got a fair amount of questions about Road America starting early on a Sunday. It says, thank you for explaining it simply. IndyCar is primarily a Midwestern market. And he says, pass the ranch dressing and corn mazes. And obviously, people make a weekend of it driving to the races. He says, you... Uh, Post up on a lake pontoon uh, come Sunday, then race uh, Saturday, then come Sunday. You go racing, then you're home in your own bed in Illinois by 10 p.m. So please tell me IndyCar understands, say, Chicagoland, uh, a place with a mere 10 million folks, is pretty equidistant from a number of current races, um, and that they understand that we do indeed drive and travel to them. He says the logistics and timing of those weekends in Indiana, Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan, St. Louis, and Iowa, they matter for the event's appeal to travel for the weekend. He says the business people at IndyCar are thinking about this, right? Awesome. Now I want to save this one for last. I do believe that IndyCar has a greater feel that I can think of among the last couple of administrations that when they are working with their partners at whichever racetracks in the Midwest, that traveling is indeed something they need to take into a greater account. I know in the case of what we explained that you reference here about Road American at start time, this is something that uh, the man in charge of the track for so long, George Bruggenthies, he insisted upon, said, hey, we're not doing this mid-late afternoon start thing. We are a travel track therefore we need to get this thing going early so folks can get going and head home and get home at a reasonable time if we don't no one's going to turn up and this has worked this has been a mandate from the track my two cents on this would be more of that needs to happen and not so much from a dictating to IndyCar and really, you know, pointing the finger at them about this is what must happen. A lot of the start times for races on the calendar are dictated by television. And I hate to say it, but in many instances, 
knowing that Midwest races, as you mentioned, very much of a, a kind of summerish type thing, knowing that at least currently the way the structure is with NBC Sports and NASCAR, that they pick up the second half of the NASCAR season, well, we start to get into July when we run. Granted, I realize we're not, it is Midwest ish, but we're talking about. Uh, we go to Toronto this weekend. Obviously, the last round was at Road America. I was up after that. Mid Ohio Gateway. We have the primary broadcaster with their primary racing series, which is NASCAR, and it should be considered as such because it puts up the biggest number and is the most profitable. When they're looking at planning, scheduling, and calendaring, they're absolutely looking at NASCAR first. And I know that a lot of NASCAR is on big NBC. A lot of IndyCar is obviously on NBC Sports Network. But, yeah, the the bottom line here is I don't think it's just primarily IndyCar not fully understanding that, hey, we need to get these Midwest races off starting at around noon or so just to give folks a chance to drive in, enjoy, and not you know burn them out by getting home at 2 a.m. because we have a late start. A lot of it is having to work with the TV partner and having to come up with uh, the best possible scenario that's made available to IndyCar. So that, I think, is just the, the not only the primary answer, but the primary thing that just needs to be continually pushed and developed and explained that, A, <laughs> having IndyCar on NBC exclusively is amazing. There's n- It's everything many of us have been asking for just need to keep in mind that as we are trying to grow IndyCar, make it more healthy, more popular, more everything. If we are doing things that are impacting the actual turnout at the events, ticket sales are down. Grandstands are half full all because we have some start times dictated by television windows that have folks going, Nah, I'm good. I'm not going to be one of those 10 million folks in the greater Chicago area who drive to Gateway, drive to Mid-Ohio, whatever. Again, I'm just random examples, not claiming those events have uh, poor start times. But nope, not going to do it because (laughs) by the time the race is over at 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, by the time the line to drive out um, I can actually get out of the track and onto the main road at another hour to add however many hours to drive home. Going to probably need to stop and get gas. Going to grab a bite. Got to go pee, whatever. Um, you're going into work Monday morning, a zombie. All for a thing that you're trying to do because it's fun. Again, I realize we're just talking a few hours difference, but if you can go do that, and the start time allows you to get home with that three, four, five-hour drive, whatever it is, to get home at 9 Sunday night, enough to unpack a little bit, take a shower, who knows, maybe watch the race on TV at home, but you know, fall asleep and, and feel like you've had a great day, a great event, and but you're not stretching your limits of, of sanity and sleep and otherwise it's that little comfort zone and it's a great point here it's that little comfort zone couple hours and if we can just save those couple hours to ensure that folks can get home that thing that we talk about that our man robin miller wrote about this week 
about crowd size, about people going to motor races. Why is this continually decreasing? Not everywhere. Again, there are some exceptions, but why aren't grandstands as full as they once were? Not putting it all on this, not by any means. I just know that this is one of those things where if it is improved and we do have some of these better Midwestern start times for the traveling races that folks will often go to, you help folks out there. I just have to believe you are selling more tickets. The tracks are happier and more profitable. Things look better on TV uh, in those grandstands. There's nothing negative here. It just takes a willingness to try and make IndyCar's TV start times something that aren't solely dictated by other series and or other factors that might be broadcast. So it's not an easy thing to solve. Obviously, it would all be solved if it was that easy. But I think it just takes a willingness and a ongoing recognition that as we continue to try and improve this, things will indeed improve overall for IndyCar. All right, that's it. Thanks for your questions. Great fun. Send them in every week. Love getting to them. And let's get rocking and rolling with Colton Herta, then Michael Duncalf, and then we will speak to you next week. Colton Herta, you are becoming a regular guest on the Week in IndyCar. I don't know what that says. I don't know if that, that might end up being the biggest it. disappointment of it. your rookie season. <laughs> um, you are a busy, busy young man heading off to Toronto this weekend, trying mm-hmm. to go for your first street course victory in IndyCar. Got a lot of great questions that have come in, varying from the very serious to the very not. So why don't we get rocking and rolling, my man? And we'll kick off with Jordan Darwin, one of our most frequent askers one of our most popular questioners who says colton do you see a difference in the way certain drivers race you now versus when you first made it into the series i wouldn't say race but um i'd say the biggest thing you notice is is they get out of your way now in practice and uh they're they're not screwing you up before um it wasn't really like a, a big hassle to get out of the way um, a lot of the big guys have like a lot of respect for, for everyone though. You know, Dixon has a lot of respect, Will Power, just Nick Gardner. They were all really nice coming in. Um, but then, yeah, some people, um, don't want to make it easy on you until you've earned it. So, um, yeah, now, now everyone knows that, you know, I can, I can put down a lap. So, so they don't want to be the one to ruin the lap. So they're getting out of the way now. You can say his name. It's Zach Veach. He's the worst. Just the meanest guy, I tell you. Gosh, that guy's horrible. Always threatening people. Um, let's go to our pal Andrew C. who says, Colton, Marshall's photo of you for this episode is you holding your poll award from Road America. He asks, where do you store your trophies, and have you come across any really unique ones on your career so far? Um. Yeah. I think, like, still to this day, the coolest trophy I have was from karting. Um, they're called Screaming Eagles. If anybody raced in the IKF days of Grand Nationals, they would know what that is. But the Screaming Eagle is is a golden Screaming Eagle. <laughs> and you get it from winning the pole. So um, I, I have four of those from Grand Nationals in 2008 to 2010. And um, I, I, I love those trophies. The Bull Award is really cool, and my Coda Trophy I both have at home. I have a, I have a trophy case at home that I keep them in. 
And of course, we wouldn't dare disparage the good folks at NTT or any of the partners involved with IndyCar. But I would just politely suggest maybe for the Monterey round, since in theory you could just uh, drive, maybe bring your one of your Screaming Eagle Pole Awards to Monterey, show it to Jay Fry and company. Maybe they can improve on the, I don't know what, the little glass kind sweet. of thing. You know, I mean, we can do better. Yeah. We can do better. Let's go to Josh Near. He says, Colton, there are times this year where you guys, the Harden Steinbrenner team, have looked like you're in a class of your own, and then there are times where not so much. He says, do you think the ups and downs are the learning curve on your end or the team's end, or is it a technical thing, maybe a little bit of both? Yeah, I'd say it's a little bit of both. We're both very young team, if you look at it. I mean, this is the second year for for Harding. This is the first year for Harding Steinbrenner. Um, and then obviously my, my rookie year as well. And we've all kind of made some rookie mistakes, but you know, we're learning along the way and it, it's a perfect environment for me to come into because, uh, we're both making these mistakes. It's not like when you, when you hop right into Penske or Andretti and you have to perform right away to keep your seat. Um, you know, this is a, a low risk environment where, yeah, we want to do well and we're very competitive, but we also understand what's going to happen going to stick on this theme and this might be my favorite question this comes in from john foreman who says colton after road america you called out your team for quote sloppy work during the race he says i was surprised that a driver would do this publicly so my question is do you think this public reprimand is effective in improving the team for the next round and then he also asks my thoughts as well um I don't think it was too proper of me to do that. Um, I felt bad afterward. I, I apologize. But, um, you know, I, w- I was so angry. We had such a good weekend going, and, and we we just didn't make the, the best of that race. So, um, yeah. Yeah, there you go. John, it, it surprised me, but not in a individual way, meaning – the team or Colton, it surprised me because that level of candor has been almost entirely stripped out of, um, I wouldn't say motor racing, but IndyCar in particular. And I'll I'll say this, I've had, during my days as an IndyCar crew member, I've been yelled at, if not directly, as part of a team for underperforming from a driver who few of us respected. And... Mm -hmm we already had a little bit of get the F out of here mindset with that driver altogether and have also been laid into by a driver who we knew could have won if we had done a better job at just in general. And so I'd say it's a maturity based, whether you have a crew that's old enough to receive that heat and also it's based on whether the driver has earned it. And there are some who can always find fault and are always complaining. And you know that even if you did a perfect job, yay, welcome to eighth place. And then there are others yeah. where you go, yeah, I look, no one likes being told you suck or you came up short or, or you're the reason we didn't win today. But sometimes it does actually, I have to say, sometimes that little bit of extra heat, knowing the spotlight's been put on you, um, hopefully folks receive it the right way. I would say in your example, Colton, I can't say that every team member would have been happy to hear it, 
but I have a strong belief that your team knows they could have had a better result and know that they can win with you every weekend. Therefore, hopefully they won't be beating you up too much when you all see one another here in Toronto. Let's go to uh, Corey Matthews, who says, Colton, I know the season isn't over yet, but are you looking forward to anything for next year already? Um, uh, yeah, I think obviously I had a lot of fun at Texas. Um, I think I have some unfinished business to do there. So obviously looking forward to that. Um, you know, I didn't really think that, that mile and a half ovals or, or ovals in general were going to be my thing or if I was going to enjoy them because I, I really didn't enjoy them that much in Indy Lights. Um, but but, you know, they've been a lot more fun this year in IndyCar, and cars been quick at every one we've gone to as well. Um, so, you know, I think getting back there, getting back to Indy as well, only only completing, you know, the first little bit of laps there was uh, was heartbreaking. Um, so, yeah, I think there in Texas, I'm looking forward to going back and, and, and doing finishing what we started. That's been my biggest surprise for you this year, and it's – not been a surprise that I didn't expect you to do well on ovals, Colton, but you really <laughs> seem to have a knack for them. Like the, the bigger, the speed, the higher, the commitment, just there are some folks who kind of lightly step towards the edge of the cliff. You on the other hand, man, you're like, woo, let's sprint right on up to it. And we're going to do an ollie over the edge and see if we can yeah, stick that's it. Why I think I like Texas because it wasn't, um, with, with how the aero package is nowadays, it's not easy flat. So it's, it's actually, it's quite tough. And, uh, even in qualifying, it's, it's hard to hold it flat. So, um, makes like some kind of drive around some problems that you have. Not, not completely. If you have a bad car, you're not gonna, you're not gonna be at the front, but, um, it does give you some leeway as a driver to drive around some stuff. Whereas, you know, Indian stuff when you're flat out and that's all the car has, that's, that's all you're going to do. So know that you're heading to Toronto where last year was a, a pivotal part of your Indy Lights weekend and season, I should say. Uh, Mark Hood has a question. He says, on a bumpy street circuit like Toronto, do drivers wear any kind of mouth guard to prevent their teeth from being damaged? Or is that not an issue? He says, from onboard cameras, it looks very violent in the cockpit. And again, knowing last year. Uh, what Was it a fracture or a break to a finger? I mean, you, you came out of there lumped up a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I did mess up myself, but um, you know, hopefully, hopefully, we're not doing that again. Um, I, I love Toronto. I still love Toronto, even though it broke my thumb. But uh, um, I've always been fast with the trunk as well. Um, it's been one of those places for for me that um, I don't know. It just just clicks, and and I'm able to get the car dialed in real nicely. So hopefully, we can do that again. Um, obviously this can be a different beast in the Indy car, but, um, yeah, really looking forward to going back. So do you go there with full mouth guard, uh, what rib oh, protector no, from no, carting? Do you have your, heard of anybody doing that. your elbow guards, you know, from batting some, practice? Some people, I, some people wear knee pads. Um, I don't, so I've, I don't know if people wear elbow guards. It might be a good thing on the ovals cause you kind of get your, your elbows up into the cockpit and they get all bloody and stuff after the race. It's gross, but no, 
Well, you still have a couple years of growth, I would imagine, as well. So we'll see where you end up height-wise. But, yeah, definitely some of the taller drivers are known to do the knee pads for sure. But we'll we'll see. You could be uh, the first 6-foot-10 IndyCar driver if you hit a real real awesome spurt here. On my head above the roll bar. Well, they're going to have to make a brand-new aero screen because, yeah, you're going to be a a double-decker aero screen if you grow like that. Uh, let's go to Kevin Frederico. He says, Hey, Colton, what are your thoughts about your former teammate Pato O'Ward and his deal with the Red Bull, uh, driver, junior driver program? Um, curious also if you have any interest in driving other types of cars besides open wheel, maybe Formula Drift, Pikes Peak, Baja, etc., etc. Um, first off, yeah, it was great. Pato was great last year. Um, we both learned a lot off of each other. And, um, I think that's why we, we completely dominated last year in Indy Lights. And I think that's that's because of that. I think we won like 13 or 14 of the 17 races, us together. So, um, no, it, it was awesome to, to, to be able to run with him. I learned a lot off him. Um, as far as his Red Bull deal, I think it's, it's, it's good for him. You know, I think he was struggling to find money and and keep afloat over here. He was doing stuff with Carlin. Um, and, um, so no, I think it's, it's a good thing that, that he, he got into this deal. Um, I think he always did want to do formula one, which it's looking like, I think he does have a pretty good chance at it. If he does good in super formula, the biggest thing is his super license points. Um, I think he's lacking a few. Yeah. Um, cause they weren't awarding them in Indy lights, but, um, yeah, you know, he, he's really talented. I think he's going to do really good in Super Formula. And uh, I definitely think if, if everything's right, then then he'll make it to F1 as well. What about non-open wheel and, I guess, non-GT types of race cars? Are there any either major events that stand out where you're like, all right, that'd be I fun? The biggest thing that I've wanted to do was uh, trucks at Aldora. Oh. <laughs> yeah. That, I've never no. uh, done like Pikes Peak or never been super interested by like the Baja stuff, but trucks at Eldora. Definitely uh, trucks at Eldora. Oh, you can so make that happen. I was going to say stadium super trucks as well. Oh, I would not be allowed to do that. <laughs> Barrel rolling down the front straight, Colton Herta. Uh, well, yeah, didn't exactly. It, didn't exactly stick the landing. Let's stay with uh, the question here from Kevin on Pato, not Pato specifically, but just more your mentioning of last season as Indy Lights teammates. Obviously, you've been busy trying to have your own rookie season with Harding Steinbrenner Racing, has the mm-hmm. affiliation with Andretti Autosport. Have you had a chance, had time to check in and see how Andretti Autosport's young Indy Lights drivers are doing this year? You know, obviously, Oliver Askew's won a ra- you know, done some winning. Robert McGinnis as well. You had a chance to, it's weird to say the next, next generation, because you're the next generation, but had a chance to kind of check in on those following behind you in those seats. No, but I, I have been watching. Um, you know, I think there's a few guys that stand up. Obviously, Oliver Askew is really close to to making it. I think he can do it next year if he wins the championship, of course. Um, you know, there's a, there's a few guys, Braden Eves, um, Rasmus Lynn looks good uh, this year as well. Um, even Renus VK, who's, who's in the championship hunt, 
with uh, with Askew, and he won. He beat Askew last year in Pomasta. Um, so you know, there's a few good guys that, that can make it, and I think can can be competitive right away. Let's go to Horatio Frey, who says, Colton, what is the role of Little Al these days within the organization? And he also says, keep giving them hell on the racetrack. Um, yeah, I think we're still we're still here for support for for Little Al. Um, you know, he's been uh, a lot of help for me especially with uh, just the driving side of things. Obviously he, he was a, a rookie at one point in IndyCar and, and uh, you know, he was uh, very successful in his IndyCar career. So there's a lot of, of stuff to, to know from him. Um, you know, he's still with the team um, and I think he'll, he'll be coming to races soon, hopefully. Amen to that. Ben Cohen says, Colton, if you could only eat one type of taco for the rest of your life, what would you go with? Probably like um, barbacoa, some sort of meat in a broth that's been cooking for a long time. Do you like the fact that you've become motor racing's point of contact for all things tacos? (laughs) Sorry, what was that? I said, do you like the fact that you've become the point of contact for all things related to tacos? In our sport. Yeah, I, <laughs> I didn't think it would ever get this big, but, you know, I love it. <laughs> All right, well, we're going to get down to the last couple questions here. Again, knowing you have a very busy day ahead of you. Matthew Lewis says, Colton, there have been reports that some drivers don't necessarily like how or when you choose to pass. Uh, has that or will that change how you race? And I think your race engineer... Nathan O'Rourke might have answered that question in a uh, story or an interview we did here that went up this week on racer.com. By the way, Matthew, you might read that, but what says you, Colton? No. It's a simple answer. Um, I think I'm fine. If, if, I was, if I was racing so badly, I'd be getting penalties, wouldn't I? So, um, you know, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. You want, you want racing, but then... Uh, you uh, you want to stay clean and stuff, so so sometimes it does have to get rough and you have to get the elbows out. But um, no, I think for the most part it's been fine. Obviously, there were some controversial moments. From, um, yeah, they happened. So that is what it is. Sorry, I'm walking around. I'm, I'm at a I'm playing a pro am today at, at uh, in Akron, Ohio, and we're gonna take these out. So, um, but no, I think, you know, if, if the driving standards were poor, I'd be getting, I'd be getting penalties, which I haven't so far. So, so far being the operative statement right there, you punk. Yeah. Um, all right. We've got two more to go. I'm going to kick that off with Ryan Terpstra, who says, Colton, I know you and your dad, uh, did an endurance event and you won the 24 hours of Daytona earlier this year with BMW. He says, mm-hmm. other than the obvious one, that being the 24 hours of Le Mans, are there any other sports car endurance races you might have your eye on? There's quite a few, actually. This is this is like the one market that I love doing. I love doing the sports car racing stuff. I love driving with BMW and the M8. So, um, yeah, I think probably top of the list would obviously be Le Mans. Um, right behind that would be... 
but 24 hours in Evergreen. Ooh. Uh, 24 hours of Spa. Um, the 10 hours of Suzuka. And the 12 hours of Bathurst. <laughs> we need to make this happen. See, so win your first IndyCar title, win the Indy 500, then being able to lay that out in your next contract, like it becomes so much easier. Yeah, exactly. All right. Save this one for last from William Matson, who says, Colton, what's the biggest and or most surprising thing you have learned so far this year in your rookie IndyCar campaign? Um, probably the race knowledge. Um, you know, guys, guys like uh, that run at the front all the time, guys like Newgarden and, and Dixon, although in some cases it's very pivotal, but guys like them, they, they just know the race so well that they, they don't need a strategist. You know, they, they already know the plan. They know what's going on. So, um, you know, they don't, they don't need a strategist and, and it's quite incredible to watch them race and stuff. So I think just slowly, still still need to gain a lot, but slowly gaining race knowledge is the biggest thing. And that also speaks to just your general approach, right? And there are some drivers who see themselves as a piece of the puzzle and try and stay in their proverbial lane. You seem to be someone who wants to, not that you don't want to have a strategist or that you want to do everyone else's job, but you, you really come across as someone who wants to learn as much as possible so that there are no holes or mysteries in everything outside of the cockpit as well. I mean, is that just a bit of a, a natural thing or have you learned to want to do that? Yeah, I'm not sure. I knew I, I'm always eager to learn and, and, uh, and yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty important too. So I'm always trying to grow myself obviously I have a really solid team behind me to to do such a thing and and pretty experienced engineer and uh race strategist and brian barnhart and nathan o'rourke so yeah yeah well go swing a stick at balls yeah <laughs> i'll try not to embarrass myself in the indycar community too much today I, I would just say you should have brought a shotgun and turned it into a fun kind of skeet shooting thing where you just blow, <laughs> you know, blast other people's balls out of the sky. But Colton, hopefully this weekend goes well for you. And thanks for taking some time here on the little week in IndyCar presented by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Thank you for having me. All right, my man, go enjoy. All right, thank you. Talk to you later. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye-bye. Michael Duncalf, it's great to have you on here on our little week in IndyCar show. Really happy to see how far you have taken this idea of yours with exclusive autosport from a driver management program to now having a full team of your own behind that driver development program. It's for those who don't know your story, and before we get to some of the questions that our listeners have sent in. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, and what brought you into motor racing? Sure. Uh, so, uh, first off, it's, a, it's an absolute pleasure and an honor to, uh, to be on the podcast with you. Um, I guess I started racing karts when I was uh, like 9 or 10 years old and uh, was an aspiring driver. Um, unfortunately, didn't uh, that, uh, that didn't work out for me, but... Uh, I started my management company up in 2008 and started uh, driver coaching and, and managing drivers in both open wheel and, uh, and sedans. 
and um, I guess it was 2012 uh, when the first, really, when the, the idea to start our own uh, race team uh, came into into play. Um, we had a number of drivers that um, we needed to place into form the 1600 competition because I believe that you know, was the best place to. It still is the best place to develop open wheel talent. Um, you know, coming from from go karts, and uh, there really wasn't a program out there that fit our driver's needs. So we, uh, I phoned my wife and I said, what do you, what do you think? Are you, are you, are you supportive? Are you on board if we start, uh, our own race program? She thought it was a little crazy, but she <laughs> said, uh, that yes, she, she was, uh, she was fully supportive of the idea. And, um, in 2013, uh, we started, uh, exclusive autosport and imported, uh, four brand new, uh, Spectrum F1600 Honda cars. So this driver development, model certainly one that was i think most famous in the a uh, little bit of the late 80s but in particular the 1990s in canada the uh, the players academy there was a whole bunch of really good stuff going on was any of that an inspiration for you i'm not sure if it was a, uh, an inspiration for me but it was um when I was a young aspiring driver, I definitely uh, paid attention to the, the Players Academy and always dreamed of being a part of that program. Um, one, I was a little bit too young and then um, you know, wasn't able to uh, get myself into Formula 1600 competition to start getting uh, even on uh, the players' radar at that point. But um, it was definitely a program that uh, you know, I watched and, uh, and dreamed about being a part of. So let's move to your road to indie program. And you and I met however many years ago, uh, with the driver that you were working with, who, uh, you were placing in touring car back then world challenge, then uh, kind of grand Amish slash what we would call IMSA today in the, uh, second tier, uh, training series there. Where did the desire to say, okay, if I'm going to build a team of our own, was open wheel always that path for you? Uh, something GT or sports car as well hold equal or any allure as well? Just curious how we have exclusive autosport now and also doing very well uh, for a while now on the road to Indy. You know, I think uh, open wheel has always been my passion. Um, the sports cars are awesome. I love the sports cars, uh, but it was always uh, the, the goal and, uh, and really the dream to have an open wheel program. And, um, when we, when I first started the Swiss Autosport in 13 with the, the front of 1600s, uh, it was a, it was a goal, but it seemed a very, uh, honestly a far fetched goal for us to be in the road TND. Uh, that was, that was absolutely a, a dream. Um, and to be honest, I didn't, I didn't, uh, if you would have asked me in 13, I, I wouldn't have told you that we would have been in the road to Indy, uh, in 2017, um, that just seemed way too soon. Um, but we, we were able to position ourselves. Uh, you know, we had some strong drivers and, um, we had some success in, in Formula 1600 and we were able to, uh, you know, translate that into a, a USF 2000 program in 2017 and the road to Indy. And then we were able to again expand, uh, for 2018 and into the Indy Pro 2000 championship. So, um, it's been a lot of a lot of big steps and and, and hurdles, but uh, it's been uh, it's been a pretty incredible journey. Let's get into the the questions that came in, and I'll fill in a little bit of stuff here too. So our pal Jameen Tuttle says, Michael, 
You have two unique indie pro drivers this year. Says the story of how Nikita came to the U.S. and discovered racing as an adult is awesome. He asks, how did you guys end up working together? And he also mentioned your other driver, uh, young Mr. Frost. Seems like an amazing talent that has the potential to make it to IndyCar. So curious if you can share the background of how you have come together with your uh, your current driver crop right now and any thoughts on what the future might hold for them. Sure. So uh, with, with Nikita, um, I first actually met Nikita I believe that was in 2014. He was uh, driving on a competing form of 1600 program. And uh, so that was the first time that we met. It was actually at Watkins Glen. And um, and I guess it would have been the fall of uh, 2017 um, when we started talking about uh, his aspirations of, uh, again, he he raced um, in the the Formula uh, Pro Mazda championship that year. And he wanted to, you know, stay in that series and go with the, the new Tatis and Indy Pro. And uh, we're talking about our program. So he tested with us that fall um, and then ultimately decided to go uh, a different direction, but we kept in contact and he thought we uh, we had a pretty solid program in, in 2018. So he came, uh, he wanted to come aboard for 2019. Um, so that's, that's how we met Nikita. Um, and he's been, he's been phenomenal to work with and, uh, you know, we're, uh, we're hopeful that we can, keep uh keep working together and keep going together um, and then daniel uh actually daniel was uh was really unique uh, re- really unique uh meeting um how we came together his mother uh jasmine frost came over to uh the u.s to homestead last year for uh the first official test of the road tnd in uh, in 2018 and it was actually uh, a good friend, Roberto Moreno, mm. who uh, who brought her over and uh, introduced her to me. And so she met a number of uh, met met a number of team owners that day, and I was the last uh, the last team owner that she had met with. And um, you know, we had re- really hit it off and kept in contact, and were discussing, you know, what uh, the goals for for Daniel and his career were. And uh, the goals for exclusive autosport and everything seemed to uh, really align. So we, uh, she went back to Singapore after that test, and we had uh, further discussions and discussions with her husband Lars, and um, ultimately uh, put a three race program together for Daniel last fall in uh, USF 2000. You know, he came over here. His first round was at Road America, and he had never tested with us uh, or even tested the USF 2000 car. He just jumped straight in at, uh, at Road America. And every session just kept on getting quicker and quicker. Um, and he's been doing the same thing this year. You know, he is a phenomenal talent and, um, you know, absolutely has what it takes to, uh, to, keep, to keep growing and keep uh, developing and, and make it in, uh, in IndyCar. The uh, Frost Latoshkin, if I'm not totally mangling Nikita's last name, I love I love what you got going on here, Michael. Seriously, I, there, there's a some good chemistry and some great talent uh, that obviously we're wanting to see work their way up to Indy Lights and beyond, and that was the next place I wanted us to go. So, from what I know of you, and and from the, the times that we've spoken, I've never gotten a feeling that complacency is your friend. Um, Indy Lights. IndyCar, uh, you said you could never imagine, you know, back in 2013 that you'd be here in the, the middle tier of the road to Indy. Knowing you've been able to do that, do you look at Indy Lights and IndyCar at some point in time as pie-in-the-sky type things? 
or do you think that they could be achievable in a you know somewhat uh short timeline no absolutely it's uh again to be in the rotundity was a dream and now that we're here it seems uh you know we, we keep keep pushing and keep working towards uh, expanding the program. Um, so Indie Lights is absolutely on our radar. Uh, been looking at it for a while now. Um, we're not quite there yet, but we're getting we're getting very close. Uh, you know, the Andersons, uh, and the entire uh, Road Indie staff, they've got a you know phenomenal uh, series and, and ladder program in place. And um, and I think for not only exclusive auto sport, but for our drivers, um, it only makes sense for us to. Uh, figure out a way to get that last step of uh, the ladder in place. And then we'll have, um, you know, four, uh, really a four-step uh, ladder system all in-house for drivers to uh, come in and, and graduate through uh, on up to IndyCar. Um, and as far as IndyCar is concerned, it's uh, it's a dream, um, but it's, uh, it's not one that I would say is in the immediate future. I think we need to tackle Indy Lights and tackle that one uh, successfully before uh, putting an IndyCar program together, but I think I think the 500 would be uh, a pretty amazing experience. Well, we've got one Canadian team owner in Rick Peterson just saying we need more, so um, <laughs> got to make this happen. Uh, Justin Brockwell uh, is the next question for you. It's an interesting one because it doesn't come up that much on the the ladder level. And Justin asks, what is the usual race prize money earned in, say, USF 2000 or Indy Pro on a normal weekend? The usual prize money, I believe. So uh, pole position, I believe, is uh, $1,000 in USF 2000. Uh, I believe 1500 in Indy Pro. And then a win is... I believe right around $2,000 uh, in Indy Pro and 1500 in USF 2000, somewhere in that neighborhood. And it's not, it's not a big number. It's not really meant to be a big number the way the road to Indy, especially as the Mazda road to Indy, incentivize things. Really championship-driven. If you can become the champion at each level, there is a significant prize, basically a free advancement to the next step obviously for the indy lights champ there is that million dollar advancement prize which will get you a couple of races plus indy 500 but not a huge amount of money being handed out for race wins and such does that factor into anything for you michael just looking at annual budgeting and such uh, does the potential to bring in some prize money have any real relevance for you as a team owner also knowing that prize money is handled there's no uniform way of handling it with some teams x percent goes to the driver could be all could be none just curious if it's any any number that you factor into an annual budget or not it it really isn't uh because it's um it's a variable that uh that's hard to uh that's hard to measure Uh, again you could you could you know even if you had um the absolute best driver um you know under your tent and you planned on winning every race, you know, you could have a mechanical, you could get taken out, you could, the driver could make a mistake, you can't. So it's very difficult to count on um, a certain number for prize money. Um, I think the, the prize money that's in place is, is, um, is tremendous. And, uh, you know, the, the Road to Indy and their staff have done a great job securing sponsors. 
so that that uh, that prize money can be there for teams and drivers. But um, ultimately, I think you know the scholarship that you know that is awarded to the, the each series champion that enables them to move up every year. That is that is the the goal um, for every driver and every team to to secure that. Well, let's close on this, Michael. This comes in from Jim Johnstone and touches on something we've uh, been through a little bit, but will shape it in a slightly different direction. He says, Michael, as a Canadian open wheel fan and father of a brand new kart racer, I love to see a team move from the Canadian F1600 series to the road to Indy ladder and be successful. Asks about your ambitions and moving up, but would maybe like to add uh, a new component to this, Michael, and just talking about, Canadian talent and hopefully raising the next Hinchcliffs and Wiccans and others. I know as a businessman, you're not defining what you do by any specific border and saying, no, it must, I must only run Canadian (laughs) drivers, but just curious, you know, if you have the opportunity or if you're out there actively looking for those who, you know, might help you uh, and your country, be better represented, not only in the road to Indy, but maybe IndyCar in the future. Just curious how much of a an active thing that might be within exclusive autosport. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's definitely at the forefront. Um, again, you know, our, our doors are open to any driver of any nationality. Um, but uh, to have a, a Canadian under the tent is always, uh, always you know, special. Um, you know, we had, we had Parker Thompson uh, with us in 2017 in USF 2000 and, uh, in Indy Pro in 2018, and that was uh, that was pretty fantastic. You know, we uh, he secured our very first wins in the road to Indy actually at the the Toronto Indy in, in, in 2017, and that was um, a very special and, and incredible moment in um, in my in my career as well as uh, you know the team's history. The Red Deer um, Rocket, a, as I like to call him. That's, <laughs> that's right. He is uh, he is a rocket. There's there's nothing that he can't uh, drive the wheels off of. Um, so that was, uh, that was pretty special to, uh, you know, to have, um, him and, and being that, you know, Canadian and, and also from out West, you know, we, we live, um, five hours away. He's in Alberta. I'm in Saskatchewan. Um, so the, you know, we're, we're both Western Canadian, uh, guys and, um, to, to work together was, was pretty special and, um, yeah, no question. We're definitely looking, always, always looking for, uh, Canadian talent and, and uh, would love to, to have, you know, some, some more Canadians in the program. Uh, one of our drivers this year in Formula 1600 is Olivier Bedard uh, from Quebec. And um, he's, a, he's a, a phenomenal Canadian talent. He's done a little bit of open wheel, um, always been on a, a limited budget. But this year he was able to secure some sponsorship and uh, put a full season uh, Formula 1600 program uh, together with us. And um, has done phenomenal. He's leading uh, both the Toyota Tires S1600 Championship as well as the uh, Formula 1600 Canadian Championship in Quebec, and uh, has uh, posted 15 wins so far this season. So um, he's a driver that we're, we're hoping to finish strong, the season strong with, and hopefully we can put things together to help him move into the uh, the Rotary Indy for 2020. I love it. Love the sound of it. Love what you've been doing. Just awesome to see the growth of everything you have been doing, Michael. So thanks for taking some time here, and hopefully we'll have you back on the show, if not a little later this year, as we start to look towards 2020. 
Sounds great. Well, thank you so much, uh, uh, Marshall. It, it was a pleasure. And uh, like I said, I haven't seen you for a number of years, but it was, uh, it was great when we first met when I had driven sports cars. And uh, it's an honor to be on, on your show uh, a number of years later. It was the Hyatt Place, Daytona Beach, was the last time we saw each other. I wish I could tell you why I remember that, but I do, and my brain is weird. So there you go. All right, my friend. Well, again, congratulations on all the success you have been having, and I'm sure there is more coming. And I look forward to seeing you soon and look forward to speaking to everyone next week on the next edition of the Week in IndyCar.